All right, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Lakewood Bible Chapel. Uh, please open your Bibles and turn with me to Acts 15 uh, and stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1536 to 1610 this morning. Starting in verse 36, we read, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And they went through the region of Phrygia, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You may be seated. Well, why don't we just jump right in? Take a look at the first point in your outline, Paul and Barnabas' disagreement. Our text this morning begins with Paul telling Barnabas that he wants to visit the brothers from their first missionary journey to see how they are, and to encourage and strengthen them. The immediate context of this passage is the sending of the letter from the Jerusalem council back to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And in this letter, the apostles in Jerusalem had made it clear that the burden on the Gentile believers was a light burden. Remember from last week that the key encouragement of this letter was that the leaders in Jerusalem have put to bed the notion that these Gentile believers need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul is so encouraged by these words that he can't wait to go back to the Gentile churches and share this letter with them. He knows that this letter from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem would serve to encourage and strengthen the brethren. And Paul loves these Gentile believers like they are his own children, and he can't wait 
to encourage them with this amazing news. But we see here a conflict arise between Paul and Barnabas. Verse 37 reads, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. And so we see Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. And this disagreement is over whether or not John Mark should accompany them on this second missionary journey. John Mark was Barnabas' cousin and had accompanied Paul and Barnabas at the start of their first missionary journey. And Barnabas thought it would be a good idea uh, to bring his cousin along with him on this second journey. But Paul disagreed in the strongest terms possible, so much so that they separated. John MacArthur says the following regarding this word separated in our text this morning. The word for separated is only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's Revelation 6.14, when an apocalyptic disaster occurred. The heavens separated. So when they separated, they separated. There wasn't a, love, uh, there wasn't a lot of love there. They were a little bit bitter, and they blasted off in two directions. So this was a very serious disagreement. This was an unreconcilable disagreement. Now, why would Paul so strongly reject the idea of bringing John Mark with them? Well, Luke tells us Paul's reason in verse 38, which says, But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And this, this uh, abandonment of John Mark is confirmed if we look back in Acts 13 and read, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. He left them. So this is why Paul didn't want John to join them on what would become Paul's second missionary journey. And it's clear that this was something that he felt very strongly about. In fact, he was so convinced of this that it resulted in Paul and Barnabas separating without resolving this disagreement between them. So what are we to make of this? How does this apply to our own lives? First and foremost, God is not hindered or limited by our hindrances and limitations. Therefore, we have to be careful of elevating mere man to a place that only God should occupy in our hearts. Paul and Barnabas, while used greatly by God, were sinners just like you and I. They needed Christ's salvation as much as the rest of us. Now, our text does not tell us who was right nor who was wrong in this dispute. It's not for us to know. What is clear is that Paul and Barnabas, at least at this point, could not reconcile their differences or even agree to disagree for the sake of the gospel. They were at an impasse. We also see that immediately following this disagreement of God, sorry, this disagreement, God moved forward through Paul to expand the church into Europe as Paul would end up visiting and establishing churches in many cities in what would now... Uh, what we would now call modern-day Greece. 
I would caution you that if this dispute between Paul and Barnabas causes you to waver in your faith, that you are placing your faith in the wrong thing. Second, we have to be careful of allowing the conflict within the church to cause us to distance ourselves from the assembly of the brethren. The church is filled with men and women who love the Lord with all of their hearts and at the same time are still being sanctified, still growing, and still being conformed into the image of Christ. And Paul and Barnabas were no different. Our sanctification is not complete until we are glorified. This means that there will be disagreements, fights, hurt feelings, and more as the Holy Spirit works in each of us to kill the deeds of the flesh. So don't let yourselves be discouraged by these kinds of things as they are part and parcel with the people whom have been commanded to be perfect but have not yet been made perfect in the flesh. Third, because of this, we need to be a people who are saturated with grace, a people who are saturated with the gospel. If God has forgiven us, how can we not forgive those among us who have wronged us or hurt us? Grace is not something that you hold on to, not if you've truly received it. Grace is something that you pass along. And you do this in the abundance with which you've received it. And haven't we all as believers received grace in infinite abundance? We are not only justified by the gospel, but we are to live each moment of each day in light of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel can be summed up in the word grace. We are born into sin and enslaved to it. The consequence of this is that we are condemned to eternal torment apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, but Christ came and died in our place for our sin. This means that if we believe that this sacrifice has satisfied the wrath of God, And if we place our trust in Christ as the Lord of our lives and as our Savior for salvation from the consequences of our sin, we can be rescued from our condemnation and instead have a secure hope that we will one day and every day after be in the presence of the Lord to glorify Him and to find complete satisfaction in every way through our enjoyment of Him. And all of this is because of grace. We don't deserve this, guys. We don't. So when as a people, so we then as a people, more than any other people, should strive to walk in that same grace day by day, situation by situation, and relationship by relationship, especially with regard to our fellow believers in the Lord. It is also noteworthy that later on Paul would be reconciled to both Barnabas and John Mark. For example, in 1 Corinthians, which Paul wrote a number of years after this, we read, uh, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? And in Colossians 4, he says the following regarding John Mark. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom 
you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. As well as the following from 2 Timothy, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. So it is clear that whatever disagreement Paul had with both Barnabas and John Mark, that they worked out their differences, and they didn't just reconcile, but went on to serve the Lord together in ongoing ministry. But back to this morning's text, we see this parting of Paul and Barnabas, and they go their separate ways. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So under the cloud of this yet-to-be-reconciled separation, we see the birth of Paul's second missionary journey. And we see Barnabas, along with Mark, travel to their home of Cyprus, and Paul chose this man named Silas to go with him. Silas was first introduced to us in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. He was one of two men, the other being Barsabbas. Um, he was, the other man was also called Judas. Um, he was sent by the Jerusalem Council to accompany Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. And now, continuing in our text, verse 40 ends with these words, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. I think from the overall context of Acts, this verse simply means that Paul and Silas received commendation from, uh, or, or were sent by the church in Antioch for this second missionary journey. But in addition to this, I think from the more immediate context of the Jerusalem Council, that Paul was commended by the apostles and elders there to take this letter to encourage the Gentile believers and make the grace of the Lord known to these dear brothers in Christ. And you know what? That's exactly what they did. Take a look at verse 41, which says, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. We should not miss what this teaches us about grace. Do you know that the grace of God is meant to strengthen those who follow Christ unto eternal life? Turn with me to Romans 5. I'm going to read starting in verse 20, which says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Notice the words being used to describe grace here in Romans 5. It says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It says, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Grace is not some sort of touchy-feely thing. Quite the contrary, grace abounds. Grace reigns with power in the lives of the saints. Grace is the strength with which the sin in our lives is conquered so that through righteousness we might obtain eternal life. And this righteousness is not our own righteousness. Look back to verse 18, which tells us whose righteousness this grace reigns through. 
It says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. This righteousness is clearly the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to us, or said another way, is credited to our account as our sin is placed on Him. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So you can imagine then, when this letter, which was saturated with the grace of God towards these new Gentile believers, that when this letter was read to them, that they were indeed strengthened in their resolve to remain steadfast in their faith. And my prayer is that grace would reign in your life and my life to strengthen us through the righteousness of Christ unto eternal life. May this be a reality for all of us who know Christ. Moving on to the second point in our outline, we are introduced to this man, Timothy, whom we we read, Paul has circumcised. Let's read from the start of chapter 16. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is the first mention of Timothy in the New Testament. And we see that he is spoken well of by the brothers in Lystra and Iconium. In fact, Paul was so impressed with Timothy that he wanted Timothy to join him and Silas as a fellow laborer in the ministry work that they were doing. And then the text says, and he took him and circumcised him. Wait, what? Wasn't Paul just in Jerusalem arguing that circumcision was not a prerequisite for salvation? And isn't Paul carrying a letter with him that says as much? And further, isn't this the whole reason that they have left for this second missionary journey? To strengthen the churches with the the news of this letter. In addition to this, Later on, in his letter to the churches, in his letters to the churches, doesn't Paul argue strongly against the necessity of circumcision for the believer? For example, in Romans, he says this about circumcision, for, now, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So here Paul emphasizes that circumcision is about the heart, not the act. He also says in Romans 3, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So both the circumcised and uncircumcised are justified not by whether or not they're circumcised, but by faith. And then he says the following in Galatians. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. So Paul says that the act of circumcision counts for nothing. So what's going on here? Isn't it hypocritical for Paul to have Timothy circumcised 
and then go on to so strongly condemn circumcision in the life of a believer. So much so that, as we'll see in a brief moment, Paul refuses to have Titus circumcised. So let me just say this up front. Paul is not being hypocritical at all. I urge you to pay close attention because I think we can learn a lot from this. First and foremost, it is important that we understand exactly what Paul was arguing against when he condemned circumcision. So let's go back to what was argued at the Jerusalem Council to see exactly what that was. There are two verses in Acts 15 that bring to light the issue that Paul was contesting. First, Acts 15.1, which says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then Acts 15.5, which says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. Paul's argument is not that a believer should not be circumcised. Paul's argument is that it is not necessary for a believer to be circumcised for salvation. Another way of saying this is that there is nothing wrong with a believer being circumcised, as long as it is not out of a desire to attain salvation or contribute towards salvation in any way. So that is the theological issue that Paul was speaking against regarding circumcision. Let us now consider Timothy's circumstances to better understand why Paul had Timothy circumcised in light of this whole circumcision controversy. Fortunately for us, Luke gives us Paul's reason for having him circumcised. Notice in the latter half of verse 3, it says, "...because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek." Wait, so Paul is now compromising because he was afraid of the Jews in those places? Again, I don't think so. Paul does not operate out of fear with regard to the ministry of the gospel. Remember in Paul's first missionary journey when under the threat of death by stoning, he went back into Lystra where he had already been stoned. And he did this to strengthen the souls of the disciples and encourage them to continue in the faith. So Paul was not afraid On the contrary, he was courageous, and therefore, I think something else is at work here. What we see in verse 3 is that Paul's motive for having Timothy circumcised was not for salvation. Instead, Paul's motive was one of ensuring that they had an effective evangelistic ministry. The fact of the matter is that while Timothy's father was Greek, his mother was Jewish. Remember that the lineage of a Jew is passed down through the mother, not the father. And this is a highly significant factor in understanding Paul's motive. One commentator says regarding this that unbelieving Jews would would not have given Paul a hearing if he had traveled with an uncircumcised Gentile, even though Timothy was half Jewish. The Jews regarded an uncircumcised son of a Jewish mother to be an apostate Jew, a violator of the Mosaic Covenant. It's important to understand that for those things relating to the gospel, Paul is willing to do quite a lot to help further the gospel ministry. 
as we see in 1 Corinthians 9, where we read, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more, more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, a lot of people will wrongly use these verses as justification to compromise on core doctrines of the faith in order to reach more people with what they think the gospel is. Or even worse, as an excuse to indulge the sinful desires of their flesh. On the contrary, this is not a passage speaking about compromise, and this is clear from the text itself. For example, Paul explains that to those outside the law, he became as one outside of the law but is very quick to clarify not being outside of the law of God himself, but under the law of Christ. Paul is not giving a green light to compromise for the sake of the gospel here. Paul is simply saying that if there are things that you can do that will remove some perceived barrier between that person and the hearing of the gospel without compromising the word of God or the message of the gospel— then why wouldn't we do those things? Okay, so with this in mind, we also know from Galatians that Paul refused to have Timothy, or sorry, Titus circumcised. Why would he do this if he had Timothy circumcised? Well, here's what Galatians says. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in a spy, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us to slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So with regard to Titus, there were false brothers, much like those at the Jerusalem Council, who were saying that Gentile believers had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Stay with me here, because uh, the latter portion of Galatians 3.5 is the key that unlocks this whole discussion for us. It says, To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the, go- the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In this circumstance, the gospel was at stake. And as we just saw, Paul, while willing to do whatever he can to remove barriers to the gospel, is not, will- is, is, is not willing to compromise the gospel. In the case of Titus, the gospel was at stake because his circumcision would have been based on the premise that a work of the law was needed in order for Titus to be saved. If Titus was circumcised, it would have become a reason for Titus to boast in a work that he had performed to achieve his own salvation. Boasting in our salvation is reserved only for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
Now, back to Timothy. Remember, Timothy was not circumcised for his salvation. Rather, he was circumcised by choice under the banner of the freedom that he had in Christ to remove the barrier that it would have caused them in preaching the gospel first at the synagogue. He, at the encouragement of Paul, did this in order that he might become, in the eyes of the Jews, a Jew, so that he might win Jews and then Gentiles for Christ. He did not get circumcised in order to be saved. Okay, let's get back to our text and see what happens next. Verses 4 and 5 read, As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. And so they were carrying this letter with them from the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, a letter which contained instructions as to what the Gentile believers should abstain from for the sake of unity, a letter which made it clear that circumcision is not required for salvation, a letter characterized by grace, a letter which therefore served to strengthen and encourage the Gentile believers in these churches. Notice also that these these were churches that continued to grow, as it says at the end of verse 5, and they increased in numbers daily. Think about this, and remember that Paul and Barnabas just separated. Remember that Paul has been fighting for the gospel in the shadow of this circumcision controversy. So they are not only facing external trials, difficulties, and persecution from outside the church, but also internal strife and difficulty from within the church. And yet, In spite of this, they are a vibrant, growing, and thriving body of believers. Do you know why, brothers and sisters? Because the growth of the body of Christ is not dependent upon us, but on Jesus Christ alone. He builds His church. And we have seen this throughout Acts. Christ is strengthening and building His church one step at a time, one day at a time, one city at a time, and one soul at a time. And all of this in the face of persecution and in spite of unreconcilable disagreements and controversy that would even threaten the truth of the gospel. The church grows not because of the gifts, talents, wisdom, or knowledge of God's people. On the contrary, God uses the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the low and despised of the world, to bring to nothing those things that the world holds dear. And all of this so that we might boast in Christ Jesus alone. So believer, do not think that your weaknesses or your frailties can hinder in any way the furtherance of the gospel. Instead, if you are not already, get to work. And be used by the Lord in your weakness to confound the wise in gospel-saturated ministry. And all of this to the praise and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Every member in this assembly has a gift and a role to play in this greatest of all causes. And I encourage you to talk to the elders if you don't know how to get involved. And as you seek the Lord to understand how he might use you more for the work of the gospel, let us look to Paul as an example and see how the Lord led him 
As we consider the final point in our outline, God leads Paul to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Our text continues in verse 6, saying, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So there should be a map that comes up here fairly. There there we go. Good stuff. Um, So Paul, Silas, and Timothy were boldly preaching the gospel in Derby, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium, uh, which you can kind of see up in the middle of the map there in that green section. Um, That green section is actually the region of Galatia. Um, And they continue in a westwardly direction toward the region of Phrygia, which was a part of Asia. Asia is in the blue and Phrygia is on the bottom right side of it there. In Asia, there are uh, the cities of Thyatira, Smyrna, Ephesus, Laodicea, Colossia, among others, some of which Paul would visit on his third missionary journey. But our text tells us that at this point, the Holy Spirit forbade them to speak the word in this region. Interestingly, Paul would visit Ephesus on his way back during this second missionary journey, which you can kind of see if you, that red line there on the left side going back into Asia goes to Ephesus. Interestingly, Paul, um, but at the moment, but at the moment, this did not leave many options for them, right? They had just come from the east, so it didn't really make sense for them to go back that way, at least just yet. To the south of them was the Mediterranean Sea, and they couldn't go west into Asia. God has just said they couldn't go there. So they went north toward the province of Bithynia. But when they entered the region of Mysia, which is in the northern territory of the Asian province, we read, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So twice we see that Paul and his traveling companions had a plan and were going in a certain direction but the Lord stopped them from continuing. We often refer to this in the language of Christianese as closed doors. Notice that Luke does not tell us how these doors were closed. Luke just says that they were forbidden to speak the word in Asia and that they were not allowed to go into Bithynia. It very well may, have, it very well may be that they had a vision, much like Paul will soon have in verse 9. They may have had inward promptings, or Silas may have prophesied, or they could have even had to quickly respond to dangerous circumstances going on around them. All are means by which the Lord could have guided them, but we do not know because the text does not tell us. You know what? This text is not about how they were told the Lord's will, but by whom they were told the Lord's will, and to whom They were submitting every decision. This phrase used in verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus, is an interesting and unusual one. One commentator says that this term highlights Jesus' leadership in the mission. Jesus was leading them. Jesus. The one who spoke, and out of nothing, all things came into existence. The one who was with God, but did not consider equality something to be grasped. The one who lived a perfect life and died as the final sacrifice for our sin so that we could be with him. This same Jesus who is leading Paul 
is with his saints. Therefore, we are not to fear. This same Jesus is our God. Therefore, we are not to be dismayed. He helps us. He strengthens us. He upholds us with his righteous right hand. So be encouraged as you journey through this life and face the difficulties that this life brings. Remember, believer, who is guiding you. It is none other than Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any greater reason to not be dismayed when things are not going the way you expected them to go in your life? Kind of like the things were going with Paul, Silas, and Timothy. As they desired to go to Asia, but God forbade it. So they started walking north for another 200 plus miles. Imagine walking 200 miles. Have you ever walked 200 miles? No, you haven't. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping to preach the gospel in Bithynia, but this God, who is their God, would not allow them. They did not fear. They were not dismayed. What did they do? They kept going. They looked at their circumstances and prayerfully made a decision as to what to do next, and they acted. There is a lesson here for us. If you are not sure about what the Lord wants you to do, look at the circumstances around you, prayerfully make a decision, and start moving, start working, start serving, start something. And watch the Lord guide you as you actively wait for Him to show you the way to go. By the way, waiting on the Lord is not a passive thing. Rather, it is an act of waiting in which you are busy about the things that the Lord has clearly placed before you as you wait for the Lord to show you what He would have for you regarding that which is unclear to you. God's Word is full of wisdom regarding this. Here are just a few verses for your consideration. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Psalm 37, 5 says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. Proverbs 16, 3 says, Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Do you believe these things, brothers and sisters? So I encourage you, pray about what God would have you do. Pick a direction and get going. And God will show you what he wants you to do. And so we see that as Paul was going, God was guiding. Not only in closed doors, but also in open ones. Verses 8 to 10 say, So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. An interesting thing to note, some commentators suggest that because of the narrative changing from they to we here, that it indicates that Luke joins Paul, Silas, and Timothy here in Troas. 
And while in Troas, likely now accompanied by Luke, Paul has a vision, a vision of a man of Macedonia standing there and urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. We are not told who this man was, only that he was a man of Macedonia. And Macedonia is located in modern-day Greece. And this man calls for Paul to come over and help them. Let's pay close attention now to what Paul and his traveling companions do with this vision. In verse 10, we see two things. First, that they immediately sought to go into Macedonia. Second, that they had concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel there. Now, this second point indicates to us that Paul took this vision to Silas, Timothy, and Luke, and that they together evaluated if this was indeed from the Lord, and together they concluded that it was the Lord telling them to go and preach the gospel to the people of Macedonia. Um, I think that there are at least three things that we can draw out of this. First, it is always wise to seek the counsel of faithful brothers and sisters in the Lord, especially when you are uncertain about whether or not God is leading you in a particular direction, like if you have a vision. Um, second, your final test as to whether or not the Lord is leading you in a particular direction should always be whether or not it is in line with what we already know to be the will of the Lord. I would caution you when you are wondering what God's will is to not merely rely on circumstantial guidance, nor the guidance of intuition, nor signs or symbols, but take all things first to the Lord in prayer, and then be in the Word daily, for it is in His Word that we know His will, and His Word is sufficient for us in all circumstances of life. Psalm 19 gives us great insight regarding the sufficiency of Scripture for all the circumstances of our lives. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. John MacArthur says the following regarding Psalm 19, verse 7. This word perfect is the translation of a common Hebrew word meaning whole, complete, or sufficient. It conveys the, it conveys the idea of something that is comprehensive so as to cover all aspects of an issue. Scripture is comprehensive, embodying all that is necessary to one's spiritual life. The implication, then, is that we should be people of the Word, people who spend time daily seeking the Lord in the Scriptures, a people who study the Word, who memorize the Word, so that it saturates our hearts and minds. The third and final thing we can learn from Paul's response to this vision comes from how he, Silas, and Timothy responded. Once they were convinced that this was the direction the Lord wanted them to go, they obeyed. Notice that one of the characteristics of obedience is an immediate response to the instruction of the Lord. Verse 10 says that they immediately sought to go into Macedonia. This means that they did not delay. 
This is something that I think parents can relate to. When teaching your children obedience, one of the characteristics of true obedience is that when you, uh, is that you do what you've been told when you've been told, and not just in your own time. And this is also true for us when it comes to obeying the Lord. How often do we have our own idea of when we want to do something and the Lord's timing is different than ours? So when the Lord says, go, do this or do that, we say, but Lord, let me put this in order first or let me just take care of that before I go and do what you've told me. Paul shows us what true obedience looks like when the Lord makes his will clear and calls us to go and do something like Paul, our response should be immediate. So now as we close our time together this morning, let me encourage you by reminding you, first, that God is not hindered by our weaknesses. He will accomplish everything He intends, and He will do so by using us in our weaknesses so that he gets all the glory. Second, remember grace. Don't let anger and bitterness toward one another keep you from being useful to the Lord. Remember that God has shown you immeasurable grace. Pass that grace on to those around you and live in the power of grace through righteousness unto eternal life. Third, if things are stagnant with regard to your life and your spiritual walk, follow Paul's example. Pray, make a decision, and get going. And the Lord will guide you as you are serving Him in whatever capacity He has equipped you with. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I'll close us in prayer. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 